0: Hello, hi and welcome. I'm Ali Kasmi, and I'm delighted to be here with my co-host, Hector. Hi, Hector.
1: Hi, guys. Welcome to our inaugural edition of The Tax Files, a monthly audio podcast where alongside some esteemed guests, we're going to talk into some pertinent topics around tax and accounting professionals and get to know some key members of the tax industry a little bit better. Ali, how's your week been so far?
0: Pretty good. Uh, except I just came back from Germany and who would have thought Frankfurt airport had a strike.
1: What?
0: So there I was stranded for one day without a hotel room. And uh, so, you know, live an exciting life.
1: Eventful. It's almost quid pro quo, isn't it? Even though the borders and everything have opened up post COVID, you just can't escape some sort of drama <laughs> when you're traveling at the moment.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. But hey ho, you know,
1: it, uh, if it
0: doesn't kill you, it just makes you stronger.
1: Absolutely. What was Frank about like
0: a uh, beautiful weather? Yeah, really, really nice. Uh, they, they, they're really a lot more COVID sort of like conscious. So everywhere you have to wear masks and things like that. How was
1: your week? It's been good. What's been going on? We're hurtling towards the summer. So enjoying the weather here in, in the UK. And I hear that we're, uh, we're kind of in for quite a glorious couple of months ahead of us, which would be, um, which would be nice. But I, uh, have actually just been sort of getting back into the fitness regime in the last week, which I was taking some inspo from you, my co-host. So I've been getting back into running when the weather's good and getting back into the gym. And I think everyone's kind of fearful of the fact that the summer is just round the corner, so all of a sudden the, uh, the idea of the summer bodies and getting back in shape is, is kind of on the agenda. So
0: talking yeah. of summer bodies, my instructor keeps telling me summer bodies are made in the winter.
1: That's his mantra, he
0: keeps telling me. Yeah. So I'm so excited. This is our first, as you say, inaugural episode. Uh, We did the pilot, what was it a while ago? Really exciting that we will be now, you know, welcoming our guest. So the first part is to actually get to getting to know our guest, his background, and what are the latest developments, his thoughts and beliefs.
1: So without further ado, I'm very excited to welcome our first guest to the Tax File podcast, who is Alex Cobham, the CEO of the Tax Justice Network, somebody with an incredible reputation behind him, what do we even say, you know, the founding member of the steering group of the Independent Commission for the Reform, somebody that sort of is part of the technical advisory group for Fair Tax Mark, you know, sitting on the board of a bunch of different things. And involved with a lot of interesting topics around the tax space. We are very excited to be welcome, Alex, to the podcast. Alex, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. It's a a great pleasure to be here.
1: Where are you joining us from?
2: I'm in uh, Las Palmas, where part of my family is from. We're spending this school year here to have a different air for this phase of the pandemic.
1: At least, if there's a lockdown, you'll be in the in one of the sunniest climates in the world. So I think that is probably a better idea.
0: So I'm I'm actually absolutely thrilled to have Alex as our first guest. I'm a real fan because Alex, you've done so much, and you're so young. You put me to shame. Wow. I mean, if, if I look at your CV and what you've achieved, two books as well, and the great thing is, you scare people. If I had an offshore structure, I would be really, really scared of you.
2: Oh wow, we're we're, we're not here to scare. We're, to, <laughs> we're here to, to to help people be better. No, no.
0: If, if I was a baddie, then I would be scared of you. I'm I'm, I'm on the clean side. Don't worry. <laughs> For the record,
1: <laughs> just get that in there. <laughs> I will okay. I will
2: take you off the list immediately. That's <laughs>
1: there,
0: there. Are not many people who can talk about having coined the term the four Rs as it applies to taxation anyway we'll come to that in a minute let's talk a little bit about what was the key moment in your life that started your tax journey because I I I suspect that not many people and at the age of five or ten they say I want to be in the area of taxation uh you may hear some people I want to be a pilot or a train Driver, so when did you decide that you're going to eschew all of those interesting areas and go into the world of taxation?
2: I have to confess, almost everything that's ever happened in my career has just been an accidental fall. And this is a kind of an example of my privilege that I've just been lucky at each step of the way that things have panned out rather than there ever being a plan. So when I finished right. my master's in, in international economics at uh, Cardiff Business School, having studied at Edinburgh, I didn't really know what to do with myself. And I applied for basically one research job, um, which was at the the Department of International Development at Oxford University. And it was mainly working on investment patterns, looking at the investment of firms of different sizes. So it wasn't, wasn't really to do with tax, although tax comes in there a bit. And that was the first place that the UK government actually made a series of policy statements about tax havens. And, you know, just as luck would have it, we were the people who'd written the, the background work on that. And so it was the first time for me, you know, I'd certainly never learned it in any of my um, courses, that I was seeing this connection between tax havens and development and how financial secrecy could undermine mm-hmm. revenues. Um, I met someone a couple of years after that who, who worked with um, the rebel, well, one of the rebel movements in Sudan, uh, the justice and equality movement this was under Bashir, a very harsh military dictatorship, supporting effectively the 5% of the population from the region that, that most of the government was from. And what they did was they used spending policy and tax policy very deliberately to exacerbate the inequalities facing the majority of the population. But they hid the data that, the, the, that showed that.
1: Hmm. And
2: so I ended up just from the back of this conversation writing about the extent to which in the data that was public you could actually see this very deliberate pattern and it kind of played into some of the the work that was being done by sudanese academics including uh, as called the black book of sudan Mm. which showed how over decades this this one group of people had basically Mm. controlled all of the government ministries um and you know used that to basically put everybody else in a worse position and bit by bit you know uh I guess that road brought me brought me here
0: mm, there's such an interesting story I mean particularly the Sudanese example which is almost an extreme way of showing just how powerful taxation can be and not powerful that also as a force for evil I mean gosh that's that's scary But, you know, talking a little bit about, particularly the international offshore centers, because that's obviously been a big agenda item for yourself. Mm -hmm. Look, we're dealing with tax morality here, really. But, you know, how do you, you know, it's easy to attack a jurisdiction, an offshore jurisdiction, because we know these uh, nameplate companies and they don't have substance and so on. That's the only thing that's going for that island. And if you take that away, you know, they will have nothing else left.
2: That's a really interesting point. And I think you can see a development in the kind of, in the tax justice movement. So I think if you, if you go back 20 years to when we were being set up, it was very much led by the OECD, what was then called the Harmful Tax Practices Programme. And it was very much about saying there, there and there are the bad guys. These are these small jurisdictions that are responsible for the bad stuff and they need to meet the international standards that we're setting. And it was, you know, the the backlash against that, not unreasonably, was that this was basically kind of imperial behaviour and that it didn't um, support a level playing field. You were asking these small jurisdictions to do things that actually the United Kingdom, the United States and other big centres were not themselves doing. And I think, you know, because that's the moment that the Tax Justice Network and a lot of the movement got going, there's a period when, you know, some of our rhetoric is is a bit too close to that. But what's happened over time is about challenging the global inequalities in taxing rights. So it recognises that lower income countries suffer most from international tax abuse now in terms of the the share of revenues they lose. At the same time, it's driven by high-income countries. In the middle of that, you have the dependent territories of those countries, especially, but not only the UK. All of those dependent territories, one way and another, were pushed down this road towards financial secrecy, towards tax havenry by the UK. You know, my colleague Nick Jackson has documented a lot of this from the archives, in effect, how you can, on the one hand, give these places an economic opportunity, while at the same time, making sure they don't undermine UK tax revenues. And the discussion is very explicit. We don't care if they undermine everyone else's tax revenues or their financial regulation, as long as they don't undermine ours and maybe they channel some money into the City of London, which we're worried about protecting as as the preeminent centre, as the British Empire fades away. Now, on the one hand, it's true that it has raised the per capita income in those jurisdictions compared to the alternatives, but at the same time, it's imposed a massive, what we call a finance curse in somewhere like the British Virgin Islands or Cayman, where effectively you've sold your sovereignty. You've Mm. said to the financial sector, we will set our laws according to what you tell us we need to do. At the same time that economically, you're pushing out any other sector. The only jobs are in the financial sector. Agriculture disappears in somewhere like Jersey that used to be famous for it because it can't compete. It can't attract people. It can't pay the same wages as finance people work in two areas either they're in financial services or they're providing services to people in financial services and that creates a massive inequality and as the world now finally starts to move to shut down financial secrecy what's the future ultimately the uk has the responsibility the uk has saved money perhaps even made money over decades because of pushing these jurisdictions in this direction, now the UK has to step up to find the alternative economic path that we should have helped you with 50, 60 years ago.
1: It's almost redefining the territory a little bit, isn't it? Some of these islands and and kind of areas that have acted in this way in the past. Is that part of the wider conversation around actually what the economic path forward for some of these jurisdictions is? Is that a part of what you're doing at the moment?
2: The, the tax justice network in a sense began in jersey mm-hmm. a set of people came to my predecessor and they said we can see the damage that this model is doing to our island we want to we want to change it we can raise some money what can you do and he said well look th- the answer to this isn't to fix jersey it's to fix this as a, as a global yes. issue and, and the the pressure not to raise concerns is enormous what we have seen yeah. is, you know, a shift. It's become easier, so it's it's less impossible, if you like, for people to talk to us in jurisdictions like that. Though I think we're still seen very much as the enemy, alongside the, the OECD. It's a hard road, and that when it's wrapped up in an organisation like the OECD or the Financial Action Task Force, coming and saying you are the bad guys, fix it when you know that they themselves are not meeting their own rhetoric Mm. it's very difficult for anyone to say maybe there's something in that it feels like an attack to say there's a progressive agenda here for us that could make our lives better is quite difficult in those circumstances
0: before we go to the next section just one quick question regarding the three rules about unshelling and so on is that something that you expect, I mean, at the moment it's EU level, but do you expect and do you want to see it go across the world?
2: We're at a point of, um, of inflection. Five. When we got set up, we laid out a policy platform and it included quite a large section on tax transparency, what we call the ABC. So automatic exchange of information about bank accounts, beneficial ownership transparency behind companies and trusts and so on. And country by country reporting for for multinational companies to give some transparency when their profits are declared in a different place from the underlying activity. These things have become the international agenda. But what we've seen in the last couple of months, the the sanctions on Russia because of the invasion of, of Ukraine has brought a focus on the need for international policymakers to be able to understand the ownership of wealth. Anonymous wealth blocks effective sanctions, but much more significantly, it blocks effective taxation and regulation, financial regulation and regulation of political conflicts of interest and corruption and so on. This feels like a tipping point. We're moving from saying that it's good to know who is behind a company to saying it is necessary to understand the ownership of companies and also of other legal vehicles. And if we don't have that uh, transparency, we should be saying to the jurisdictions where companies and other entities are registered that they won't be able to operate in our economies. We've also heard talk of uh, building a European asset register. That may move first at the European level, but you know the UN has been discussing now for a couple of years the idea of a global asset registry. Even that has become... A realistic possibility in the last couple of months. So I, I do think we've we've crossed a point, and it's a question now of how fast we're we're going to move.
1: Yeah. I think the rhetoric is changing, isn't it? And I think you used a really key word there, which is transparency, right? Really delving under the skin of a lot of these structures, of understanding what the longer-term impacts of effective taxation and transparency in that sort of space have on not just that direct company or sort of individual asset, but the wider picture. I imagine that would have been even more difficult to achieve from a a pandemic point of view, right? Coming out of the last two years where arguably there was sort of more separation, more lack of conversations, other things on the agenda to deal with sort of in the immediate. Have you found that there has been areas of tax that have been exposed that we weren't aware of beforehand or kind of things that have come out the woodwork that we weren't aware of pre-going into the pandemic?
2: I've talked about particular policy areas, but you know, actually, we see our role as about shifting the narratives. You know, you can convince policymakers to do one thing one time, but if they don't actually buy the underlying narratives, then it won't stick. Putting through a register of persons of significant control, the beneficial owners of UK companies, but actually not really buying into it. And so they never resourced it to allow for any verification or any enforcement which is why we have you know all these companies registered in the name of of joe Stalin and jesus christ and so on you know because nobody is checking it so you you have to change the mindset and the pandemic in that has been you know in some ways um very positive it's given people a chance to think about fairness in some important ways you know when The Netherlands government came out early in the pandemic and said that the European Union shouldn't be giving additional funds to Italy and Greece uh, and Spain and Portugal that were bearing the brunt of the pandemic in the early stages because these countries had not been fiscally responsible we were able to supply those those governments with analysis that showed that in fact the Netherlands was responsible for many billions of losses of uh, of euros um, in, in tax because of the way it operates as a tax haven, a corporate tax haven within the European Union and that dynamic flipped entirely and you saw this pushback to the extent that the next election last year in the Netherlands was fought by seven different parties that were committed to stopping the Netherlands being a tax haven. So it, that, there's two big steps in there. One was that they accepted explicitly that the Netherlands was a tax haven, and the second that they didn't want it to be one. Yeah. That, compared to where, where we were in 2019, when effectively there was the same denial that you see in, in Ireland, um, in the UK, and lots of other places that we're not a tax haven, that was a massive shift changing also the way that people were thinking about the policies between the member states about transparency. And it extends beyond the European Union. We've even seen the United States, which has always been the big holdout, introduce not yet a public register, but at least a central register of the beneficial owner of companies to help law enforcement. There's been an understanding that, you know, if you allow this lack of transparency, it opens up the abuse of Bailouts in the pandemic, where there's been a lot of public anger, that the lack of transparency has led to all of us suffering more than we should have done.
0: Would you say, though, whilst I know your work has been about illicit financial flows and inequality, development side of things, that what has taken a backseat is the green agenda because of the pandemic where there should have been a lot more movement in the fiscal regimes around the world, that unfortunately has got uh, you know sidelined. And that should have been at the top of the agenda. It's just a personal feeling, I suspect, because there's an urgent need to attend to these issues. Fiscally, we are in a, in a very, very difficult position. There should have been a lot more focus on green taxes. You know, net zero is not that far away.
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Governments are, are quite simple animals. They find it very hard to focus on more than one thing, just like, just like we do as, as humans. And the pandemic has obviously kind of wiped the entire policy agenda for a great many governments. It's also provided a bit of an excuse because a great many governments just aren't that serious about it. But where we are now is interesting and, and slightly worrying. We're recording this the day after the UK Chancellor's spring statement. You know one of the things that's been done in response to the the great spike in energy prices has been to cut fuel duty. That's a really bad response in you know two main ways. firstly, the the great bulk of the benefits of that will go to higher income households, not to the people who need it most, the people who are deciding whether to heat their houses or to eat and feed their children. And then secondly, it's bad in terms of as far as it does anything, it incentivises more use of, of uh, dirty fossil fuels, which we, the world, cannot afford. So there is a risk right now that the immediate cost of living crisis drives some pretty retrograde steps in terms of climate. But the bigger picture, and I think, Ali, this is kind of where you were going, we need to be moving to global standards really very quickly on carbon pricing. The big risk there, though, is that in the same way that the current corporate tax proposals do, we could end up with carbon pricing proposals that effectively raise revenue for high-income countries and put costs on low-income countries. So we need to make sure that we're building in mechanisms of redistribution.
1: I think you're absolutely right. Alongside the tax agenda, this is a, a bigger conversation, I think, around sort of corporate social responsibility and, and kind of where that front sits. You know, as you mentioned with the Chancellor's announcement, it's almost a knee-jerk reaction to kind of an impending crisis but without really kind of contemplating actually what is the bigger picture behind it. In an ideal system where sort of everything is working in the way that it needs to be, what would you want to see first implemented?
2: So carbon pricing and something like a carbon dividend to ensure a very powerful redistribution within and between countries is crucial, but that requires a level of international coordination. at the national level, you know we've talked about the the transparency measures that i I do think have kind of passed a tipping point, and I think we're we're on a, a a quite rapid road now to to addressing the the biggest problems there. But as a national tax question, the issue that, that we're seeing increasingly coming up and where there is an, an important opportunity, but also a major political challenge, is around wealth taxation. So we've seen a number of countries, Argentina has been, has been a leader in this, introduce wealth taxes you know, in, in, the, in the teeth of people saying, you can't do this, it will never work. It's too easy to avoid and evade and, you know, or just all the money will go somewhere else uh, and you won't raise anything. Actually, they've raised very substantial, you know, billions of dollars within the first uh, year. So it's been demonstrated both to be effective and to be very important and highly progressive. Now, if we think about the underpinnings of wealth, so much of the wealth in our societies, we ought to consider broadly as illegitimate. You know think about the centuries in which we've effectively had patriarchal wealth systems it's been impossible or at the least very difficult for women to be the formally recorded owners of assets often impossible for them to inherit so we've created this this very very patriarchal um, pattern of wealth ownership then if you think that most wealth still is owned in the high income countries that used to be imperial powers and most of the wealth that they own is the result of the imperial extraction they carried out over a couple of centuries, how legitimate do we consider any of that? This isn't just about asking the question about, you know, whose statue uh, might be up in a, in a British city. It's about questioning almost the entire structure of wealth in our economies. So the idea that we shouldn't tax wealth because somehow people have earned it and it's all good and it's they pay tax on the income and it's all fine really doesn't doesn't hold any water. If we think about taxing wealth at a marginal level, you know annually, we're able to see how you could raise very substantial amounts of of money without impacting at all the quality of life of the people who who own the majority of wealth who happen also to be the people responsible for the great majority of um, tax evasion and tax abuse. After the Chancellor's statement yesterday, the projection is that another 1.3 million people in Britain will be in poverty in the next year, something like 600,000 children. In a different hat, I sit on the the Scottish Government's Poverty and Inequality Commission, and our role is a a statutory mandated um, commission, our role is to hold the scottish government to account for how it meets or doesn't meet its own legislated targets to reduce child poverty a great frustration in that role is that while the scottish government is is demonstrably kind of very committed to meeting those targets they are continually hamstrung by decisions in westminster like the statement yesterday you know the scottish government has limited powers to try to to curb the worst um, excesses of that, the rest of the UK has even less power. Tax policy decisions are, are not, you know, small technical things over there, while over here we make the big decisions about what to spend money on. And if we don't consider the human impacts of the tax decisions, we are committing, inadvertently or otherwise, to poverty and inequality.
0: I hear what you're saying, but, you know, the argument that is premised is that for the competitiveness of national economies for countries to do well, you almost need to have in place a inequity or the taxation system needs to be able to reward the well-off. And that's why, I mean, sort of like generally part of the liberal uh, agenda has been a relaxation on taxation. So most people can create wealth and they should be allowed to keep it. You know, you, if I can say, you know, you, you're preaching a work tax type of sort of like a philosophy, which is certainly counter to what's happening around the world where, where you have seen inequality rise. Now, if you were in America, I mean, people will be calling you socialist and uh, uh, probably um, throwing things at you. I mean, do you do you despair or do you think that, you know, there's a long term trend that just cannot be reversed, you know, as part of your work?
2: It can be it can be called woke or, or... Anything else, but the evidence is overwhelmingly um, on this side of the argument. You know, we know that more equal societies grow more strongly. You know, and we we know that today we know that for rich countries we know it for poorer countries we we know it when we do global um, uh, analyses we know it when we look at individual stories. You know, you think of some of the massive success cases from kind of the post-war uh, period they are countries like south korea that began that process albeit under a military dictatorship by a huge redistribution of land so they began from a much more equal place and it gave them a position compared to a lot of countries that were struggling to become independent that ended up becoming independent with these huge inequalities that were kind of imperial uh, bequests if you like so we can kind of see you know the, the evidence of all different sorts lines up that inequality is bad for us including bad for economic uh, growth the the kind of the old thatcherite idea that that somehow you need to allow inequality in order to have growth is just been you know wiped out by the evidence it's the other way around right obviously in, in the context of the climate crisis there is a bit of a question about how much economic growth is really a, a kind of a key part of our, of our futures, should we be thinking about growing our human capacities to to live in harmony with the world, perhaps, and our, our life expectancy, our levels of education, our, um, our health, rather than some some number associated with GDP, which really only captures a very narrow piece of, of what's going on. But even if we care about GDP growth, we know that inequality is bad for it. So that the case is, is pretty, is pretty strong, even if the ideological kind of knee-jerk to say, no no, we must cast off tax and regulation is, is still quite present or quite heavily funded, at least on the on the right wing, it really doesn't have the backing of, of economics or, or any other evidence mm-hmm. these days. That's been really interesting.
1: A lot of what you do is obviously changing rhetorics and changing narratives and, you know, kind of changing perception I guess around that tax issue. How do you keep yourself motivated? How do you, What what kind of spurs you?
2: People never stop doing things that are annoying. <laughs> yeah. You know, kind of, <laughs> um, There is a. Ali mentioned the four R's earlier. This is this kind of this framework we we use. You know, people think of revenue and redistribution as things that tax delivers. They're kind of the the ones that come to mind. There's also repricing, which is increasingly important. The ability of the tax system to change the prices of things like. Uh, tobacco consumption, so it reflects all the the public health damage that does, but also carbon emissions because of the the huge cost that has. But the fourth R is the one we tend to overlook, and that's representation. You know, the old uh, cry of American independence from the British was no taxation without representation. But the evidence suggests it's the other way around. There's no effective political representation when you don't have taxation. Countries that can rely on... either very heavily on foreign aid or more typically on revenues perhaps that come from the financial sector not from the broader economy or that come from natural resource wealth and that don't rely on taxing normal people tend to end up becoming more and more corrupt less and less representative um now, nobody likes paying tax, and I, I can say that. Even I don't really like paying tax. You know, I want to pay tax, <laughs> but it's not. I don't get up thinking, <laughs> come on, tax me. <laughs> now, but it's the fact that we don't like it that makes it work. Right? When we pay tax, we have a stake in how government is spending money. One of the terrible things that's happened in countries like the UK in, in recent decades has been this this politically popular idea that we should take people out of the tax system that we should uh, you know engineer it so that people on lower incomes don't pay income tax now that sounds progressive actually it's not because the benefits of, of raising those thresholds mainly go to people on higher incomes but it's actually politically really damaging in the same way that Um, you know, income taxes are the most salient ones. I, I see what goes out of my monthly paycheck in tax, and I am empowered to hold government to account. If I'm only paying something like VAT, that I don't really see in the same way, I'm not nearly as aware of it. I don't get that. I don't get that irritation. And so I don't feel that government is spending my money. I don't go out and hold it accountable. So what happens when we take people out of the tax system people on lower incomes, we take them, we reduce uh, what's called their tax citizenship. Their sense that the government is theirs should be accountable to them is diminished. And we get this position where if you think about households at different income levels, households at higher incomes actually pay a smaller share of their income in tax, but they pay a bigger part of that in direct taxes, taxes on incomes and profits and capital gains they are the households that feel most empowered. Households at lower income levels are paying a bigger share of their income in tax because they're paying more of their income in VAT and related taxes, but they feel it less, so they're less empowered. So we end up creating this political inequality where the higher income households who are paying less of their income in tax are more empowered to hold government to account. People at the lower end And remember, these are also households that are disproportionately headed by women. Disproportionately include people living with disabilities, people from racial and ethnolinguistic minorities. So people who are already politically disempowered are being further disempowered by the tax system. And then we kind of create this stigma around people receiving benefits, around people living in poverty. We make them even less in a sense politically valued in our societies. And we make poverty this this um, uh, feature of stigma. So what do we have? We have a tax system that is driving inequalities in representation because of what's annoying. Now, I've, I've strayed very far from your question, Ector. Sorry, but this is what angers me. This is what gets me up. I want a tax system that does the job. I want to not have to think about tax as being the biggest thing, because it should just do this stuff. It should empower everyone or reduce political inequalities. It should reduce economic inequalities. It should reduce rather than exacerbate the inequalities between countries. The idea that we still have international tax rules that leave lower income countries losing the biggest share of their tax revenues. while the rules are set by the oecd this group of rich countries that benefit most from it and even within them we have tax systems that are driving the inequalities so their lower income people are also losing out you know we can see this all we know it all Mm -hmm. and we allow it to continue it's a frustration that that you know if this doesn't get you up in the morning to fight for tax justice you know you're doing it wrong
1: Honestly, I found myself about to kind of make a banner and stand in the street or something. I'm I'm feeling very passionate about this right now. (laughs) Absolutely.
0: I mean, it's quite interesting that, you know, when you've got, essentially we've become a country of uh, just about managing, isn't it? Sort of like a whole host of people. We've had a really interesting, deep dialogue about how we can correct, or at least, you know, what is important on the agenda and I think we've we'll probably reached an inflection point whereby we spend a little bit of time getting to know a little bit more about you, Alex, uh, as a person. Hector, I believe you have some questions for...
1: Uh... Alex, are you ready to enter <laughs> what we're calling here at the Tax Files the rapid fire round? I'd
2: <laughs> oh <Lord. I> <laughs> rather talk about tax than me. But but then... <laughs> yeah,
1: it's going to get very technical here. So if you are ready, let's kick off. Right, Star Wars or Star Trek?
2: Both the imperialist nonsense, but Star Wars. <laughs>
1: Man City or Man United?
2: Man United, but FC United of Manchester, given the choice.
1: <laughs> what is your food heaven, Alex?
2: Oh, gamba salajio, uh, prawns in garlic that they do here in, in the Canary Islands, that's just beautiful.
1: And transversely, what is your food hell?
2: Do you know what? The only thing I can't deal with is is raw apple. Never could. Interesting.
1: <laughs> Keep the raw apples at bay
2: So just
0: talking about the movies, um, you know, what's your all-time f- favourite movie? Do
2: you know, I don't think, this is very sad, I don't think I have one. And it's partly because somehow during the pandemic we just haven't watched anything. It's somehow become the thing that we didn't have time for, I feel kind of very separated from things on the screen. I I know that's unhelpful.
0: (laughs) I would have thought something, you know, hearing you would be something to do with social justice or something along those lines. Have you seen the Motorcycle Diaries?
2: I have. Um, Yeah, that's got a certain something. I'm looking forward to, I am finally going to go to the cinema at some point and see um, Pedro Almodovar's uh, new film and I think he's done a lot of stuff that are kind of you know Spanish films with a real sense of, of social, at least an exploration of social justice without being kind of very preaching.
0: Yeah, you're definitely art house, so there's no Hollywood there. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, there won't be any rom-coms, I think, on the agenda. Be... What's your karaoke song, Alex? What's your uh, what's the song that you, you love to sing along to most? Don't worry, we won't make you do it. <laughs>
2: It would be i think partly because it's it's from my neck of the woods um uh, having been been brought up near dundee it would be dignity by deacon right. blue which hmm. probably, probably too far back for anyone to remember
0: <laughs> do you play a musical instrument
2: i play the guitar a bit and the, and the piano not not well just enough to to keep myself distracted
0: <laughs> impressive but were you in a band
2: Uh, Once upon a time I played the bass uh, in a band. We used to do much, much heavier music than I'm into, but a bit of reggae, um, which, you know, had a certain something.
0: You gave up your career in music to become a tax
1: person.
2: (laughs) Those who have heard me can confirm that I have given up nothing.
0: (laughs) So what was the last book you read?
2: Oh, it was um, Uncommon Wealth by Kojo Karam who's an academic in, in London. It's an exploration of the, the kind of the, the history of the UK empire um, and, you know, it, it, what we talked about earlier, really, the kind of the patterns of illegitimate um, global wealth that, that result from that.
0: So that's your day job. Is that how you relax as well? <laughs>
2: um, for something slightly more entertaining, I tend to read... Um, uh, kind of uh, detective stuff, you know, so uh, Rebus, the Rebus novels by Ian Rankin, um, and the, the latest thing of that sort I've read is um, Ian Rankin finished the last novel of uh, William McElvenny, uh on, on Laidlaw, um, and seeing those two kind of combined voices is, is fascinating if you're into, you know, Scottish uh, detective stuff, it's really...
0: Well, at the moment, I'm going through all these series of uh, Silent Witness, which I had for a long time. I did just didn't know it existed, and it's just such a long running episode. So, I mean, sort of like I don't know if you have any, if any of you've seen that, but it just keeps going on and on. And on. <laughs>
1: yeah. It's one of the longest running ones, isn't it? There's sort of quite a few um few seasons behind it. Was it 1996 It came out or something. 96 or 97, there's wow. something like 25 seasons or something, or 24 seasons, it's going to definitely want to keep you engaged, I think, for, for the rest of the year, it's, it's pretty lengthy to get through.
0: Yeah, it's interesting how these uh, tax people go into all this gory and detective stuff.
1: Sort of escapism, I think we call it. <laughs> Finally, Alex, what would you like to say to our listeners? What, what piece of information or advice or, or a quote or something would you like to leave our audience with?
2: Oh, look, you know, the world is full of people working in jobs that they, that they do to earn money. And we're all in that position. I'm unbelievably privileged to do something that I love, and I I know a great many people are not. But for people who are working in, in tax and financial services, there might not have been a choice 10 or 20 years ago to say, I want to be working in a way that's making things better, or at least not contributing to making things worse. I think there is space now to do that. And so, you know, I hope people listening to this aren't thinking, you know, this is just, you know, it's, it's kind of this do-gooder who's, who's off on one and this is unrealistic and nowhere near the existence I have. You know, th- there are opportunities. We hear from an increasing number of people at the Tax Justice Network who are, you know, who want to blow the whistle. and often we're kind of putting them in touch with lawyers and helping them find their way through what can be a difficult process. I'm not saying everyone should be blowing the whistle, but I think within companies, there is a lot more space than there used to be to say, you know, I want to insist on doing this ethically. The professional services that we provide are valuable and legitimate, but there's this bit of stuff over there that isn't quite right. I don't want to be doing that. I don't want us to be doing that. You know, take that space, Right? it's it's the professional space in which you're working and there is room to push and the only people who can do it are you um you don't necessarily need to set up a standing order the tax justice network though please do that too but you can find in your own lives the path that just allows you to make things a little bit better and perhaps allows you to feel better about um the work you're doing too Great,
0: excellent well thank you very much that was uh Really, really insightful. And uh, I completely agree with you um, that the moment has arrived. Uh, ESG is real, it is happening, things are shifting. And, uh, you know, certainly, uh, we at Hansuki are very much working on that cutting edge side of things of how do you put the T into the ESG?
2: That's great to hear. And look, thank you very much for the, the invitation. It's been it's been great. I hope I haven't scribbled on your heads. Ector uh, uh, and I have,
0: well, uh, really enjoyed having you.
2: What do you
1: that think, amazing. yeah. God, I'm definitely going to go away with wow. some new new kind of invigorated principles around <laughs> the tax space. But thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to have a conversation with you.
2: No, thank a, you. Real pleasure. Thank you.
0: So, Hector. Looking forward to the next one. Looking
1: forward to it, guys. Keep you on your toes for your next uh, guest appearance. But we will catch you at the same time next month with another exciting speaker. And we can't wait to, to chat with you guys all then.
0: Indeed. Thank you very much, guys. Stay safe.